Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about populism and the complex relationship between populism and authoritarianism in Latin America. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, recently drew criticism for inviting Russia's military along with soldiers from China, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba to participate in a parade to celebrate Mexican independence. The incident added fuel for ongoing debates over whether Mexico's president, a populist personality who often embraces controversy and seems to revel in stoking conflict with critics, is merely fostering friendships with authoritarian governments in other parts of the world, or whether he has ambitions to undermine democracy in Mexico. On today's podcast, we're delving into the topic of populism. Populist leaders are particularly inclined to embrace conflicts with their critics and political adversaries. Populism, after all, is by definition infused with a sense of hostility towards elites. Populist leaders draw support from working and middle-class voters by stoking resentment towards traditional business and political power brokers. Populist leaders often draw extra scrutiny because they often break with established norms and cross the line into embracing authoritarian tactics. After all, populism often works around the concept of creating a cult of personality around one figure. Authoritarianism, on the other hand, is based around the concept of strict obedience to a leader at the expense of individual freedom. This dynamic is challenging because authoritarianism or strongman rule often goes hand in hand with populist rhetoric. Often there's overlap between populist leaders and authoritarian governing strategies. After all, a populist can rail against the ineffectiveness of Congress, the out-of-touch Supreme Court, flawed regulatory agencies, and the biased and corrupt news media. An authoritarian leader, however, will make the jump to arguing that the will of the people will be best served by dismantling democratic checks and balances and concentrating additional power in the hands of the executive. Authoritarian populists such as Hugo Chavez, Rafael Correa, and Evo Morales, and more recently, Nayib Bukele, have worked to undermine and change the electoral systems in their countries to extend their time in power. In Mexico, the concepts of populism and authoritarianism have become part of the everyday political discourse over the last five years, as Mexico's current president has embraced fiery populist rhetoric and has also taken some steps towards undermining checks and balances on presidential power. The Economist Intelligence Unit now characterizes Mexico as a mixed bag, semi-authoritarian, hybrid government rather than as a full democracy. And many journalists and political analysts in Mexico worry that López Obrador is bending and maybe even breaking with democratic norms. 
On today's podcast, we're speaking to Will Grant, a veteran Latin America-focused journalist and author of an engaging new book called Populista, The Rise of Latin America's 21st Century Strongman. So, welcome to the podcast, Will. It's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. So... In your book, you present some really fascinating portraits of different populist leaders in Latin America. And I wanted to ask you, what qualities or attributes do you think that these leaders have in common? And what three words would you choose to describe the leaders you wrote about in your book? Well, in a sense, it's interesting. I mean, part of what I, I, I tried to set out to do in the book was was show differences as well as similarities. I, I got the feeling working in newsrooms uh, at the BBC uh, in the UK at the time as these leaders were emerging, that there was a tendency to sort of homogenize them all, to sort of put them all under the same umbrella of just leftist populists and, and just, you know, that there was no distinction between you know, everybody from Chavez to Ortega to, to, to Lula. And, and I always felt that nagged at me and that it was, it was wrong to do that. It was misleading to audiences. So part of what I was trying to do was sort of unpick that uh, a little bit. Um, but that being said, I did manage to meet and interview pretty much all of the, or certainly most of the leaders in the book, um, you know, I lived in Venezuela, so uh, would go to press conferences and was even subject to, one of Hugo Chavez's, you know, famous broadsides live on air and stuff. And so when you got to sort of spend either some time with them sat down or obviously had absorbed a lot of what they'd said, there is some very clear and, and, and very pronounced traits which which run through not just them, I think, but populist leaders throughout the Americas. For me, I think it really has first and foremost to do with um, often even a, an, an explicit property proclamation, you know, the, the very clear idea that I am the people and the people are me. I mean, Chavez literally said that at a, um, or a version of that at a, at a rally that I was at. And, and you could sort of almost hear that, feel the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You know, this is such a sort of powerful yet dangerous idea, you know, the idea that that I am so much like you that a vote against me would be a vote against yourselves. You know, that's really the push towards the electorate to say these things. And I think that underpins the idea that uh, certainly I saw through the populist leaders that I looked at on the left, the the members of the so-called pink tide. Um, What I would suggest in terms of the three words, um, I'd say they were iconoclasts. They were really trying to rail against the politics of the past, trying to sort of show, look, this is what you've dealt with up until now, but I, I am a broom. I'm the broom who's going to sweep away the past. I'm the guy who's, you know, going to break down these existing political institutions and norms. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to push back against the Americanism and the the, the Washington rhetoric that sort of uh, defined our nations for so long. And, you know, it's worth bearing in mind how some of them had had reached that point through, you know, very Washington craven um, uh, presidents who'd replaced military dictatorships. So there was a sort of thirst among the populations for for real change, real differences, um, you know, making making a Chavez character particularly such such a standout. they would also be very messianic, you know. I think the savior complex was evident throughout. Um, 
I, I even think in the sort of less um, sort of authoritarian examples of, of, of a Lula, um, still it was very, very evident the way that this sort of pseudo-religious element of the leader was always portrayed, um, almost a sort of semi-beatification of the leader, um, particularly clear at Hugo Chavez's funeral, whereas in fact they were giving out little cards with the sort of the Lord's Prayer rewritten for for Chavez, you know, our Chavez who art in heaven, this kind of thing. Again, just absolutely relating uh, the leader to, to um, sort of a saviour. Um, a saviour of the nation, a saviour of the patria. And, and I've already said the third word, which is autocratic. Um, the autocracy is just so clear in the political projects, in the leadership. Um, ultimately, I think that the, the, the effort um, by the, mo- the more radical leaders that I looked at, the, the, the Ortegas, is to make them so closely intertwined that they're, they're essentially, they, they can't be divided. You know, um, Chavismo takes over it just takes over the left in Venezuela. There's no different shades of left anymore. It's Chavismo or nada. Um, Orteguismo essentially broke up, destroyed traditional Sandinismo um, because it, again, all became about him. And as I say, even the the, the perhaps more democratically minded leader of, of Lula, um, the PT simply became subsumed to his project. So those, I think, would be the three words I'd use, iconoclasts, uh, messianic kind of figures uh, and, and autocratic men. I think, um, you know, all meaningful political opposition has been kind of pushed to one side um, in some of the more radical examples, particularly, um, uh, you know, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and of course, uh, Cuba. So um, I think really what we look at in these men is this desire to hold on to power simply, you know, for power itself. Okay, interesting. So you picked iconoclast, messianic and autocratic and i think those are all interesting and helpful words for describing and understanding the populist leaders that you wrote about and something that i think is interesting is when we think about populist leaders sometimes a word that we might want to use to describe them would be popular a lot of these leaders uh at different times in their careers had very high approval ratings and in other countries in the world such as el salvador and the philippines and india populist leaders have been able to govern in a controversial way but maintain very high approval ratings and i think that when we look at latin america there's something very interesting that we see and that's the Latin America is the most unequal and the most violent region in the world and I think that a lot of residents are really justifiably frustrated with weak government capacity low quality government services and high levels of corruption so it seems like the region in a lot of ways could really be a natural petri dish for populist politicians who are capable of tapping into and channeling that popular frustration and really kind of railing against the current economic and political status quo. But 
As you show in your book, there are some leaders like Lula in Brazil who can embrace populism in a way that's maybe more in line with Bernie Sanders and a little bit less similar to Donald Trump. And I think that one of the key questions for populists is often how far they are willing to go to undermine democracy as they work to achieve their goals. And your book is about populism, but it's also about strongmen or authoritarians. And I think that we need to differentiate between democratic populists and authoritarian populists. And one of the things that I wanted to ask about is obviously when we 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 look at the region today, there's another populist leader uh, who is attracting a lot of attention, and that's Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador. And you did not include a chapter about him in your book. And I, I just wanted to ask if you think he fits the same mold of authoritarian populism that you document in other chapters of your book. And if you had a chance to add a chapter on López Obrador in a second edition of the book, would you include him? So there's lots of really fascinating thoughts there. I mean, the first one I just want to um, touch upon is this this idea of populist and popular. It's really uh, fascinating and vital. Um, and, and I think you're right to raise it because um, Lula himself was really trying to shoehorn the difference between those two ideas when um, I, I was able to interview him in prison. He'd been in prison for, for corruption charges, and I was one of just a handful of journalists who, who got in while he was there and, and sat down with him for two hours. Uh, and he was very much like, you know, why do I and, and others in the left on Latin America get termed populists? But and he he used this example, Angela Merkel, who's been in power for you know as long as we were. Why is she just popular? You know, this was his argument. Um, and I think you're right to suggest that you know, channeling and kind of harnessing the popular demands is is absolutely key in terms of sort of democratic populist versus autocratic populist, and sort of where does AMLO um, fit in and, you know, and, and why perhaps wasn't he included in the book? I mean, I was primarily, primarily interested in, in a period of time. And that period of time was the pink tide, which to me has been, um, at least at the time of writing, certainly the most interesting political trend in the Americas. And that I defined by the arrival of Chavez to power in 1999 and the death of Fidel Castro in 2016. Now, had... AMLO won uh, when he was narrowly beaten uh, by Calderon in 2005-2006, then I think he would have clearly been part of a moment and of a movement that that warranted being included in a book. But for me, you know, I could have gone down all sorts of different avenues. I could have included, you know, the, the Peronists in in Argentina, for example, I could, you know, there's a lot of people who ask me why Christina wasn't in there. Um, but for me, I, I wanted to be very clearly defined about the things that um, made up the interest, the interests for me, and why I found them interesting, and why I wanted to sort of uh, follow the look of the follow the the route of the the men uh, in order that they took power. So we started with Fidel. Sorry. We started with uh, Chavez, then we moved to Lula, then Evo, then Rafael Correa, then Ortega 2.0, you know, his return. And I finish on Fidel Castro as the sort of um, 
if you like, the, the, the grandfather of the left in the Americas. So that's why AMLO didn't fit in, because he just didn't fit into that sequence of events. Um, he simply didn't arrive until after Fidel had died, which was this sort of the, 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 the bookmark, as it were, the, the bookend of the, of, of the book, the, the last kind of part I was interested in. Um, but to the point as to whether or not he sort of fits in, in terms of the traits and and so on, I think there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that he's part of the modern populist landscape in the Americas. One quite clearly set up by the men I looked at, uh, the leaders I looked at, men and women. I mean, I looked at men, strong men, caudillo type figures, but um, but clearly women are very much part of it too. It, whether or not that's um, you know uh, Rosario Murillo supporting um, and and really partly the brains behind what's going on in Nicaragua or, or, or other examples. But, you know, on AMLOS, you know, limiting things to, to, to López Obrador for a moment, he shows a lot of the traits. And I think anybody with even just half an eye on the Americas and half an eye on Mexico can see that. To me, I kind of reveled in showing the differences that the Mexico reality is is clearly different to a Venezuelan one with all its oil wealth or the Brazilian one for its simple geographical location and its kind of geopolitical strength. Bolivia and Nicaragua are different too. But, you know, he he's worthy of scrutiny. Uh, he is being scrutinized by lots of, you know, very, very smart journalists and lots of good writers. If I were to, in future editions of the book, include him, I don't think it would be right because I don't think he's part of what I'm setting out to do. I'm not trying to define, you know, what a populist is, uh, despite the sort of title that might lead people to think that. I'm not trying to, or wasn't trying to sort of, you know, set out what a democratic um, populist was versus an autocratic one. What I was trying to do was was really show the histories of these men, how they differed, how the, the, the similarities, the similar similarities of their political projects. You know, there would be perhaps an argument to include him in that regard, in that I'm showing, you know, the, a big political trend in the Americas. But for me, he's been sort of part of one that picked up the mantle from that point onwards, if you like, in terms of being in power. He's a very, very interesting character. Of course he is, but he wasn't in power during the period that I was interested in that kind of interesting snapshot of time uh, where the left simply controlled the Americas with just one or two um, exceptions. Um, But yeah, I think he remains very, very much part of the trends and the traits that sort of uh, are defined by the people in my book. Okay, so it sounds like you were primarily interested in writing about the Pink Tide and you had a very specific set of leaders that you wanted to write about. But maybe there could be a a writer out there now who is interested in doing a follow-up book about a, a new generation of populist leaders in Latin America. And there could be an opportunity to include Lopez Obrador in Mexico and also Nayib Bukele in El Salvador and uh, Bolsonaro in in Brazil. Absolutely. Yeah, I may well be speaking to him. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that really is at the heart of it, you know, and it's tempting to myself to sort of do that because I do think they're different, except I don't really want to do for another project a sort of populista you know, part two. But I think you're right. I think there is something that sort of came from that moment 
that has set the stage for exactly those figures and others, which I think will become, you know, clearer over time, possibly in Argentina and beyond, um, who very, very much fit the the um, the definition of a sort of um, second wave, if we want to put it that way, of of um, of populists in the Americas. And interestingly. It's not ideological, is it? You know, that they're not just tied to the left uh, in this second wave. Definitely, um, which just kind of makes me think. When I was reading your book, I kind of was referencing in my head things that I had read about uh, um, other leaders in the world, other populists, other other authoritarian leaders. Uh, a book called Cultural Backlash, and in that book, the Authors explain something that I think is pretty relevant to looking at the leaders that you wrote about. And they say, when authoritarian populist leaders rise to power, it poses risks for the political culture that supports democracy. Strongmen leaders claim to empower ordinary people as a smokescreen behind which they demand obedience and are intolerant of dissent. And I think it might be helpful to kind of expand that framework a little bit. And when I looked at what you wrote about uh, Brazil versus what you wrote about Nicaragua, something that I, I thought about is that democratic populists might publicly criticize biased media coverage from newspapers that are owned by elite local families, but they could also work to improve the infrastructure for democracy. and. Democratic populists could do things like increasing government transparency in order to let citizens keep better tabs on the government's performance. But authoritarian populists, on the other hand, will rail against the media, but they'll also take steps to reduce press freedom, reduce transparency, and will dismiss investigative reporting as fake news. And you mentioned this with us or against us attitude of the populist leader representing the people. And I think it's really important to say that authoritarians in this sense have no tolerance for dissidents or debate, and they demand absolute authority to their perspective and to their policies. And I think that authoritarian populists will work very hard to try to discredit any type of expert analysis and will insist that residents can learn what they need to know from official press conferences. And this is the interesting thing. I think that sometimes Lopez Obrador's rhetoric is in line with some of the most extreme examples of authoritarian attitudes that you present in your book. But so far, at least, his actions and policies as president haven't matched the severity of some of the leaders that you wrote about. And I think that his rhetoric can be pretty torrid, but so far his actions have been a little bit more tepid. And maybe I would sum it up by saying that he's tested the waters of an authoritarian strategy rather than diving in and taking drastic steps to cement himself in power. And... I think it could be helpful for us to compare and contrast different governments' policies here. And I'm wondering how some of the trends that we are seeing in Mexico now compare to the patterns you documented in your book. And specifically, I'm wondering 
How does Lopez Obrador's relationship with the military stack up to the patterns you documented in Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and the other countries? Yeah, I think, um, again, what's a really interesting point about all of that is the, the extent to which perhaps what one sets off as doesn't necessarily uh, equate to what they become. So there was, of course, in the case of, say, um, uh, Daniel Ortega, there was a period there where he was, okay, the most vi um, visual of the of the the junta of the of the Sandinistas who were leading the country after you know overthrowing uh, the the regime, but um, there was shared decision making. It's the sort of reincarnation of him that has been this extreme authoritarian figure that doesn't broker any dissent, that squishes voices, that won't have free and fair elections, that throws out journalists who, you know, point out any criticism, that, you know, it's almost a caricature of the of the authoritarian figure. Chavez, too, I mean, the things that he said when he was standing for power, of course, we know that he'd attempted a coup the first time around. But then when that failed and he went to prison, came out and stood as a you know civilian leader, um, the things that he said in front of the cameras on, you know, uh, at that stage um, to the, again, the kind of autocratic figure he became by the end, that, that was a process not of, you know, two minutes after taking the presidential sash. It took some years. Um, but of course, all of it on a wave of popular support, the like of which the countries, you know, hadn't hadn't seen uh, for, for many years, certainly. Um, and I think a big part of both of those examples is the turn to the military. And you're correct. I mean, for AMLO, that has been absolutely crucial. I think the reason perhaps AMLO hasn't gone down those routes in terms of sort of, uh, of, of sort of um, changing the constitution to try and stay beyond his sesenio, or to trying to say stay behind his six years is because at least for the time being those um, institutions for right or wrong the six-year rule uh, are too strong to be unpicked um, just yet I mean they may be later um, and I think he certainly wants to be you know, in the political debate long before his the political conversation and, you know, close to the levers of power long beyond his six years. That's clear. But you're right. He's not out and out unpicking the things that would, uh, you know, the checks and balances on his power, for example, which we saw elsewhere. Um, the military is crucial. The military is absolutely key to the populist leader in the Americas. And I think, you know, we see that in Lopez Obrador. He's leaned on them for all manner of, of uh, tasks that go way beyond that of security. Um, that, I think, is key because they know loyalty. And when they... Um, show efficiency and loyalty, they can be very, very useful to the populist leader. Um, they can get things done. They can get things done in a very, in a very satisfying way for the populist. He, he makes, he barks an order as it were, and then it's carried out. Um, and that's what military, the military does. That's what the army does. They don't question orders particularly. They just carry them out. And so for Chavez, that, you know, as a, as a military man, that was already key, you know, to improve their wages, make them politicise and make them loyalists in that regard. You know, we get to see the extent to which 
you know, uh, the fourth transformation and, and AMLO as a man and his project, you know, starts doing that to, to the military, that the military is politicized in Mexico. But certainly, um, I think, you know, some of these ideas, these big pieces of infrastructure that are so important to the populist leader, you know, the Tren Maya in this country or, or the new airport in, uh, you know, Mexico City, all of these things are very, very key to the sort of ego of a populist, um, the legacy of a populist, or at least their perception of a legacy. Uh, and the military in carrying out those things um, is is absolutely critical. And, and I think that is something we saw I can pretty much say hand on heart in all of the examples in my book, you know, uh, the, again, the obvious one is Chavez, but, uh, but everybody lent on the military to, to sort of carry out their, their vision for the nation because they are perhaps, uh, obviously they're the ones that have the garments, but they're also the ones that have the know-how and the manpower. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, I think, AMLO's use of that is, is, is very logical when we put it into that context. Okay, so you, you raised some really interesting points right there. It sounds like, on the one hand, using the military, embracing the military could be maybe dismissed in some cases as being about efficiency. In, in countries where there's a lack of administrative capacity, leaders can embrace the military to do a variety of tasks, and it can be as easy as saying what they want done and sending the military out to do it. But on the other hand, there's some concern that the military can be used to entrench a leader in power or um, kind of create a relationship between the current leader of the country and the military that's unhealthy or unamenable to democracy in the long term. And I think that we can take this moment to just take a look at some of the things that AMLO has done and and just say that he really has embraced the military in some pretty shocking ways. And I think number one, he's replaced the federal police with National Guard troops. And that's taking a much more militarized strategy towards security. Something else, he's assigned the military the task of building the Banco de Bienestar bank branches where citizens can go to pick up their cash transfer payments. And it seems like a kind of a strange job for the military to do. Um, you mentioned the tourist train. He's also put the military in charge of managing Mexico's ports. And one of the strangest things, he has allowed the military to start to set up a airline company that is going to be subsidized by taxpayers and all of those things kind of create some conflicts of interests about what role the military is playing in the country and i think it's really interesting to look at cuba and venezuela and see how allowing the military to get involved with construction and tourism projects played out there and Something really interesting for me when I was reading the book was just seeing that contrast between Chavez's Venezuela, where the government worked really hard to buy the loyalty of the armed forces through corrupt dealings, and Bolivia, where the military actually intervened to end Evo Morales' time in office. And I think for Mexico, maybe the big question is, what role 
the military is going to play in the future and whether civilian governments are going to be able to rein in some of the expansive powers that Lopez Obrador has given to the armed forces. And we've had the chance to talk about the role of the military in these countries. And I also wanted to talk about the, the media. And I'm wondering, in terms of his communication style and his relationship with the traditional media, how does Lopez Obrador stack up to the leaders that you wrote about? There have been some extraordinary echoes, I think, of those other leaders. Uh, just watching Lopez Obrador, listening to him, again, being on the receiving end of, of the criticisms when you, you know, ask questions at the Mañanera, the long rambling kind of uh, address to the media um, that, you know, that was the, the Chavez kind of approach of just corralling us all into a room in the presidential palace and then talking to us endlessly. Um, and giving the, as it were, the sense or, I'm reticent to say the word facade, but certainly the appearance of um, of a sort of democratic debate between the media and the president, you know, direct, directly sitting down with us or standing, as it were, we're sitting down asking our question, microphone moves around, we all get a chance, oh, if you want to ask the president, I'm there every day. That's the approach. Nobody's more of open than I am. I speak to you guys every day for hours on end, and anybody can come down. But of course doesn't actually subject himself to rigorous scrutiny, doesn't sit down with you or me or anybody like us or any of the big agencies or more to the point, any of the Mexican um, reporters who have very, very interesting and valid questions to put to their political leader, um, except for one, that when, I wouldn't say the microphone's then snatched away from you, it's not, so you can follow up and I have followed up, but it's limited. And even as I was speaking, the sheer number of insults that come waving your way online is, you know, it's just extraordinary. It's a, it's, it's an army. It's a literal online army of bots and of people. Um, and th- all of that, which is very much, you know, where we are in the 21st century, which is not where Chavez was, that was always done through television and through his, and even before that, his phone in radio program. But he was, you know, he was, president by television, Chavez. I think AMLO is perhaps, you know, part of a, of a group that's becoming president by social media um, because, of course, you know, his his Mañanera is streamed and it's all that's where it's all being run through, really, through, instead of sort of traditional television. Um, but in terms of the attacks, the them versus us, I think it feeds back into that idea, you know, that there is a them and there is an us. Um, and that the media is very much part of the them, that their uh, their questions, their very questions on something like, you know, uh, what uh, the Tren Maya, which is a wonderful project, what it's doing to the water sources down, you know, in the Riviera Maya, the very fact that we would raise that shows that we're part of the them. The journalists are part of the them and not part of the us. But you, smart viewer, friend, you know, understand that we are the us, you know what I mean? And I think that is a very, very critical part of the whole rhetoric that I mentioned at the uh, at the beginning about the, the, you know, I am the people and the people are me, therefore, you know, you've got to be with me because you're, you're the people and I'm the people. And I think the, the role that the media A plays or is pushed into playing by the leader uh, is, is, is a, a 
key part of that. It's, you know, it's almost like we've been handed a role in a play and we have no choice but to play it because we're, we're trying to raise important questions, but we can't sit anybody down to really rigorously, you know, put them on the spot, or at least in this particular kind of um, political context under this particular leader. What has stood out to me and as a big, big difference is the rhetorical style. It's so different. I mean, Chavez could simply whip up a crowd with just a handful of, of phrases. He could just take to the stage and, you know, it sounds a cliche, but it was electric and electrifying to see him, you know, in full flight because he was just, he just had this ability. It was like a rock star for people. Whereas AMLO has never really had that in the same way. He, he, he inspires devotion, but rhetorically speaking, you know, it's like a university lecturer, you know, one of one of the Pesal university lecturers that one had at, at college, one of the guys whose drones on and, and, and kind of says, now, of course, if we think back to, you know, 1822, and you just want to kind of go, oh, please. But of course, what he's doing is he's not trying to speak to me. He's not trying to deliver a style that echoes for me or for, for any other really any other journalist in that room he's speaking to his supporters and it is hitting home for them and I think it's hitting home hard because he does remain popular uh, and I think the way that he's treated the media has been a, just a, you know a fundamental part of that popularity so you raise a really interesting point there about kind of like the illusion of transparency and I think that that might be a key characteristic that ties together a lot of authoritarian populists around the world and that is this belief that they can transmit their ideas directly to the people unfiltered by traditional journalists or media and whether it's Donald Trump with his Twitter Twitter feed or Chavez or Lopez Obrador with their press conferences we see them Kind of bringing their message directly to the people um, but something that really stands out to me that i just thought about as you were speaking is it, it reminded me of this time when bloomberg published a really in-depth investigative article looking at one of lopez obrador's flagship programs his sembrando vida tree planting program and Bloomberg's investigation found that in a lot of cases, landowners were cutting down trees and then planting new ones, maybe causing deforestation rather than fighting it. And they had meticulously documented it. The journalist went to the press conference and asked Lopez Obrador about it. And his response was, oh, that's not something I've heard about. I'll look into it. And it moved on. <laughs> and it just seemed to me to be an example of uh, kind of a lack of accountability where the media had done this vital role of uh, investigating and reporting and it was just totally dismissed. In this particular case, there wasn't a lot of name calling. Uh, it wasn't um, a highly polarized or highly charged uh, encounter, but nevertheless, the, the real reporting was just dismissed and the propaganda fest resumed. You, you can just move on. You can just get rid of it. You can, you can bat it away, swat it away. And I think that, yeah, I think that's a a crucial point yeah sorry to interrupt but i do think that you know you, that you really do raise a, a, an important idea there that, that that it's not about accountability in that regard he doesn't have to follow through it is simply yeah i don't know about that on we go 
you know right definitely um but that's something that that i thought about is that maybe in some regards lopez obrador's attitude when it comes to the way he deals with journalists both at his press conferences and in general in his his discourse might be similar to some of the patterns that you documented in other countries but i also thought that a lot of the leaders that you wrote about did take much more extreme stances towards the press and chavez of course accused journalists of doing what he called media terrorism and he really worked to intimidate and silence media outlets and even drove some media executives out of the country with a threat of arrest and Rafael Correa responded to investigative reporting by raiding newspaper offices and imposing multi-million dollar fines against journalists and we know that Castro and Ortega also arrested bloggers and journalists and Lopez Obrador really hasn't gone to those extremes. He's adopted really hostile rhetoric towards the press in Mexico, but so far he's limited his offensive to verbal attacks and naming and shaming specific journalists in his press conferences. But on the other hand, he's also taken some steps to reduce government transparency and he's continuously lambasted Mexico's open data portal which is a tool that's really been essential for helping modern political journalists to conduct investigations into government affairs and hold elected officials accountable. So to me it seems like sometimes when it comes to relations with the media Lopez Obrador's attitudes are quite similar to the leaders that you wrote about but his actions aren't always as extreme and if we can continue to develop this idea a little bit further one thing i wanted to ask you about is if you had to pick one leader from your book who you think is most similar to lopez obrador in terms of leadership style and tactics for managing government policy who would you choose yeah that is a tricky one on one level um because as I say, I think both in the book and, and in this chat, I've tried to sort of flag up some of the pitfalls of, of too close a comparison, you know, that this person is like this person because, because you know, they share traits, because I, I'm a big believer of the sort of, ge- particularly the geographical, but also the geopolitical context of the different countries, making them, you know, so unique that, that it's, it, it's a little, it can be a little misleading, I think, to end up trying to say but you know the, these these two people who you know have uh, are, are kind of from the same mold but that said i mean and part of what we're trying to do here is is identify um you know identify traits and identify similarities through history through recent modern history obviously of the americas but certainly through through the recent politics and recent political history so um one that really stands out i think in that regard um, would be broadly Evo Morales, I think. I think what I see between Evo Morales uh, and um, AMLO is the sense of undoing, undoing years of an entrenched kind of political control. Now, in the case of Evo Morales, it really was a moment of unique celebration. I, mean, I can remember it well, like the undoing of, of, of nothing really less than sort of 500 years of 
of apartheid or some version of it in in Bolivia, where you know indigenous people until not that long before hadn't been able to vote, certainly um, were and remain second class citizens. So the outpouring of celebration and excitement that a coca grower could take power, I don't think has a comparison, you know, in in Mexico or, or with AMLO. But what I do think is comparable is the fact that um, AMLO has, has, has created himself or, or put himself forward as breaking years of entrenched political control by the PAN and, and Lati, uh, by the PRI and latterly to an extent the PAN too, but, but controlled by traditional parties. And as the Movimiento al Socialismo of, of, of um, uh, Evo Morales did in Bolivia, I think what by creating a new party and by creating new horizons or at least setting things up as a sort of fourth transformation and a new start that um, that uh, AMLO has done in a very dogmatic way does remind me of, of an of a Evo Morales in some regards. Rafael Correa too, though, and I think while their backgrounds are a little different, I think the sort of trajectory isn't that uh, unlikely. Um, um, Evo Morales stayed in power beyond, you know, the, the the original kind of confines of the constitution. So it changed and stayed on and so on. Um, Rafael Correa probably wanted to, we know he was looking into it, but ultimately didn't. And I think AMLO won't, well, we know that AMLO won't either. Um, so what I think I see similarly, the similarity between their two trajectories is this sort of increasing authoritarianism, authoritarianism as time has gone by, their refusal to really accept any meaningful criticism as anything but an attack on their themselves personally and their political projects. I think that they both have that kind of um, dogmatic rhetoric, the, the sense in which, you know, they are simply right and their supporters are the only ones in the right. There's very little space, either politically uh, or, um, you know, journalistically or, or, or in any other way for reasoned debate outside the confines of that, well, this is what we think is right, ergo it is, it is right, and it's what pol- public policy is going to be, what social policy is going to be, economic policy is going to be, the relationship with the military is going to be, you know? And, uh, and so I think I see um, similarities there too. So I guess those would be the leaders, the two leaders, I'm sorry not to pick one and for it to be very clearly defined, but the two leaders um, that, that, that most stand out. And I think just to, to, to kind of final thought really on and the, the line that you mentioned of the sort of illusion of democracy is, is very interesting because um, I do think it's at play in, in the Mexican example too. Um, whereas I think it's not just a thing with the kind of relationship with the media, which is so key. Um, certainly in the Venezuelan example, the argument used by the Chavistas and the, the, the United Socialist Party was like, nobody has more elections than us. The elections show just how democratic we are. We've had many, many referendums on everything, one, two a year, maybe even three sometimes. And of course, you know, the position of the, the state, the US State Department at the time is that, you know, lots of elections doesn't does not a democracy make. Now, um, you know, one can take one's own view on that. And of course, you know, Venezuelans didn't want to be dictated to by by Washington and their their take. 
but I think that there is something something of that in play. And, you know, AMLO's, let's face it, somewhat spurious recall referendum halfway through his term, you know, he held that because he knew he wasn't in any danger of being recalled. Um, it gives an illusion, certainly to his supporters, of being more democratic, more open to review than his predecessors. Um, and of other things that have kind of played well to that audience from you know, giving up Los Pinos, the presidential residence, to giving away the presidential plane, or rather selling the presidential plane, as big grand gestures of a, of a leader who's different, a leader who, who breaks with that past. And in that regard, I think those two leaders I mentioned in the Andes, I think there are similarities, although I repeat, and I will leave this as my final thought, I think that those context the andes will be different to a, a leader in the caribbean will will be different to a leader of a big big nation like mexico which will also be different to a context in brazil like i do think that you know the unique political and historic contexts that have led these leaders to their positions of power even their thrones in the case of a, of a daniel ortega with sort of a court a king like like court around him uh, are very very different and very specific to their nations yeah definitely it's interesting that you picked morales and and correa because for me when i was reading your book i think probably my my favorite chapters and the ones that resonated most to me um, were also the chapters that dealt with leaders who were, in my mind, most similar to Lopez Obrador. And those were the Lula chapter in Brazil, the Morales chapter in Bolivia, and the Correa chapter in Ecuador. And kind of my takeaway might be that in terms of policy overall, Lopez Obrador might be most similar to Lula. But in terms of his attitudes and his communication style, I think that he also shares a lot of traits with Morales and Correa. But some of the more extreme examples that you present in, in Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua seem to me to kind of be a different category. And I know that in Mexico, there are some political analysts who love to compare Lopez Obrador to Chavez or to Castro. But I think that that might be taking it a step too far um i suspect you're right and i but what i think has been interesting is that i think in order for there to be a lula there kind of had to be a chavez do you know what i mean i think in order for there to have been a chavez there needed to be a fidel in order for there to be somebody who's a bit more reasonable perhaps there needs to be somebody who went even further and i um i don't know if that's necessarily i'm not positing that as a good or a bad thing I'm just saying I think it's an interesting political trait. We have a spectrum of politics in the book uh, and, and, in, and in the region at the moment. And I think what's very, very interesting is the degree to which, you know, as you say, some characters really go to the far extremes of that. But in a sense, particularly because I think after years of military dictatorships, followed by very, very Washington uh, um you know, malleable by Washington and very suppliant and, you know, um, craven to Washington, uh, um, civilian, uh, right-wing, conservative uh, regimes in countries after the military dictatorships, there needed to be some kind of wrecking ball, like the pendulum needed to swing in the other direction, or that's certainly how the populations felt. And it swung very, very hard in the case 
of Chavez and not so hard in other cases. And I think that's been kind of what creates political space, um, you know, in the region as a whole. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you just raised a really great point, which is something that we need to think about in all of these cases is what kind of precedent did these leaders set and what will come after each one of them? And when it comes to Mexico, I think it's pretty interesting because so far, at least, despite all of his, you know, very high temperature rhetoric, López Obrador has been fairly centrist in his policymaking. And, you know, we both saw some similarities between López Obrador and Morales and Correa, but both of those leaders took a lot more extreme tax when it comes to policymaking. Uh, Morales famously kicked the U.S. ambassador out of Bolivia and actively supported Bolivia's coca growers. And Correa had some pretty extreme economic views. And one of the first things he did was default on uh, Ecuador's national debt and really break ties with uh, the economic structure that existed in Ecuador before he came to power. And I think that Lopez Obrador differs quite a bit from that. For instance, we haven't seen him break ties with Mexico's billionaires. He rails against the corrupt elites, but he actually enjoys pretty positive relationships with most of Mexico's billionaires. And uh, on the other hand, he, like Lula, he really cares about poverty eradication. And he's created new cash transfer programs that are designed to help low-income voters and also, I think, are designed to really consolidate his political alliance with uh, low-income voters in rural areas. But that being said, Lopez Obrador has really proven to be a, a centrist in a lot of important areas. He has criticized the NAFTA era quite a bit, but one of the first things he did was sign the USMCA trade agreement which kept in place the basic framework of the NAFTA trade relationship. And on the other hand, he has chosen to grandstand against keeping U.S. GMO corn out of Mexico, but he hasn't broken the status quo when it comes to the economic relationship that Mexico has with the U.S. And Lopez Obrador has also publicly criticized the U.S. anti-drug policy, but he hasn't taken real steps to create a legal marketplace for marijuana in Mexico. He says it's something that he'll look at, maybe in the same way that he will look at uh, deforestation with his Sembrando Vita program, in the sense that it's not something he cares about and it's not, not something that he'll do. Um, but... Just this past week, we saw that Lopez Obrador allowed the extradition of the son of one of Mexico's most notorious cartel kingpins, El Chapo Guzman. And that's a sign that even if he has some rhetoric that is a little bit hostile to U.S. drug policy, he's not really willing to kind of break the longstanding framework that has existed. He might have taken some steps to reduce police collaboration when it comes to investigations. Uh, 
Certainly the DEA, DEA does not enjoy the same uh, level of cooperation with Lopez Obrador's government that it has enjoyed with past administrations, but it's not a complete rupture by any means. And a few years ago, I, I wrote an article asking whether Lopez Obrador was Latin America's newest authoritarian leader or if he just wanted to play the part of one on TV. And I think that right now the biggest piece of evidence that we have is that Lopez Obrador has not moved to change the electoral rules to allow himself to run for another term in office. And you mentioned that he did do a, a referendum vote on whether or not he should stay in power. But I think that some people at the time wondered if he might follow that up with another vote on whether he should continue his time in office, maybe not by a full sexennial, but maybe by three years. And I think a few years ago, there was a much bigger question about, you know, how far he was willing to go in terms of undermining the democratic tradition in Mexico in order to achieve his vision for Mexico. And I think that we can maybe now look at it and say that he has adopted the rhetoric of a Latin American strongman, but in many ways it may be more smoke than fire. And I know that Lopez Obrador loves to spar with the U.S. government, and he also touts his friendships with the leaders of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. But in reading your book, I came away thinking that Lopez Obrador might share many of the attitudes of some of those leaders, but he's probably content with sounding like them rather than fully emulating their efforts to undermine democracy. And he really hasn't taken those extreme steps to entrench himself in power. And I think that the bigger question is what kind of precedent Lopez Obrador has set for Mexico. And he has proven that this strategy of attacking and discrediting critics is very effective. His hyper-polarized rhetoric has really worked for him. And he's been able to maintain a high approval rating in spite of largely failing to meaningfully address many of Mexico's most pressing problems. And I saw some survey data recently that shows that nearly 70% of respondents in Mexico said that they had a positive view of having a powerful leader who is not beholden to Congress or elections. Let me just repeat that. Over two-thirds of the survey respondents would be happy with a powerful leader who wasn't subject to re-election and wasn't uh, subject to checks and balances from Congress. And even more alarming is nearly half of all survey respondents in Mexico said that they had a positive view of letting the army rule the country. So it certainly seems like there's an appetite for authoritarianism in Mexico. And I think that Lopez Obrador has really worked to build his reputation around the idea that he's a pro-poor populist. But I wonder if his lasting legacy might be that he's created a roadmap for a naive Bukele-style, socially conservative, pro-business strongman to entrench himself in power in Mexico at some point in the future. And with that in mind, reading your book, it was really interesting for me to, to compare and contrast Lopez Obrador with the leaders that you wrote about. I think you did a really wonderful job of 
presenting strap snapshots of all of these leaders and then sharing anecdotes of the people that you spoke with and setting the scene in each particular country. And it really creates this great overall collection of, of stories that really help us understand Latin America in the era that you wrote about, but also Latin America today. And Overall, I just want to repeat again how much I enjoyed reading your book. And I want to say thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Nathan. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Bada Funky Coffee. Bada Funky Coffee is available at the Bada Funky Cafe in Mexico City and is also available to be purchased online and shipped to the U.S. and other countries. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you heard in the podcast today, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.